and I'm going to reclaim five minutes of my time. I get to go five minutes over. <laughs> now, we'll just speed it up a little bit. Okay, let's pray. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for this day once again. Um, we've made it through another week. Uh, we're here for refreshment. Lord, our, our minds can be so cluttered with the world, and we take this day to really just focus our minds on you, take time out of our day and say, we're going to focus on you holy with all of our hearts and minds and souls, as much as we can humanly do. But we need your help because we still have distractions of the world and requirements of our jobs and other things that kind of cloud our minds. I pray, Father, that you'd be with us now to help us focus, to help us think about it. And when we talk to other people about this particular issue, the problem of pain or the problem of evil, we'll speak clearly and we'll have um, a way to help teach other people, teach our children, teach our friends, teach our neighbors. Uh, this is something that we're going to have to deal with, Father, and it's a difficult question. And instead of shying away or running away from this question, Lord, I pray that you would help us understand it, to accept the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures by faith, trusting in you, trusting that you know best. And we can't always know the answer to everything, but we can trust you. We know that you're good. We know that you do right. We know that you'll judge the world perfectly. I pray, Father, that you would um, cement that in our hearts. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question that we are posing today is the problem of evil, which ironically we're just talking about going down on the strip and, and talking to unbelievers. And this is, a, this is a question that has thrown me for a loop because there's so many variations of this question. Uh, you know, classically, uh, if you ask a person um, why, you know, particularly maybe they don't believe a specific God or maybe they don't believe in God, they're agnostic, or maybe they're deistic. When you talk to them, they start saying, well, I believe that some force animated the world, but it's not here anymore. It's not active for whatever reason. Because they're asking, why is there pain and suffering in the world if God exists, right? Uh, there's all kinds of ways of posing this question. Augustine of Hippo said, if there is a God, why is there so much evil? C.S. Lewis summarized it this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he'd be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simpler, simplest form. So he calls this the problem of pain. Other people call it the problem of evil. The way that I was thinking about this at home when I was dissecting it is that you have some people that claim God doesn't exist for some reason. Usually it's because something has happened in their life that revolves around pain or evil. So either they've seen evil things happen to people themselves or family members, right? Um, maybe someone was the result of a violent crime of some sort or an assault or they were robbed and they say, well, evil exists in the world that happened either to me or someone I know. Or they have pain in their life, right? A loved one has died, a small child possibly, or maybe a family member that didn't know Jesus. I, I deal with this in my own family, right? Where I talk to a family member and they say, well, this person I really loved died without the gospel. Are you saying that if this is true, that person I didn't get a chance to talk to or, re or rejected the gospel, now they're in hell, right? That's where their mind goes. If this is true, then this also must be true, which is a correct logical assumption. And we even struggle with this problem when people die, right? Like when people die and we go to funerals, right? The classic, uh, I don't know what to call it, the trope is that we preach them into heaven like as a eulogy, right? It's like always, well, the person came to church that one time. You know, we want to create hope. We want to create happiness for people. But at the same time, we, we skirt around this issue because we know that if evil exists, how does God exist with that? And if the punishment for sin is hell, how do we, how do we square all these very difficult philosophical questions together? It's, it's, it's difficult, and it's difficult because it's uncomfortable, right? If a Christian knows the right answer, it's still uncomfortable to communicate that to someone, right? Because the worst, uh, John Piper put it this way, he said, you know, when someone dies and the family's suffering, the worst thing to happen in that situation for me to go to them and say, well, you know, theologically, God is this, and you know, you start giving them the theological reason why they, you know, they can accept it or they can deal with it. You just need to, as the scriptures say, weep with those who weep in those moments, right? It's not time for a theological breakdown of how God is working, but that means that we need to talk about these problems now because you're not going to be in the right mind at the time when the actual pain happens. And the Bible is very clear, pain will happen to us, right? We can't get around it. So even though we're talking about this in apologetics 
the idea of like defending the faith, we also need to be ready for ourselves when this stuff happens to us too. So there's two goals here. So what is the problem of evil? This is number two on your handout. Practically, the problem before us typically sounds like one of these questions. If there's really a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? Um, why did things like the Holocaust, Stalin, and Mao happen? Um, I can't possibly believe in a God that would allow blank to happen, right? Whatever it is. These are the kinds of questions that you have. If God can really do anything, why doesn't he get rid of evil? We, we ourselves ask, why, Lord, when our experience and our knowledge of who God is doesn't seem to line up, right? And it's not fair that people suffer unjustly. Think of things like cancer, right? Cancer, uh, some genetic illnesses, things like that, right? Especially when they're young children, it, like, it presents when they're very young. The famous uh, utilitarian philosopher John Mill summarizes these questions philosophically. If God desires there to be evil in the world, then he is not good. And if he does not desire there to be evil, but evil exists, then he's not omnipotent. Thus, if evil exists, God is either not loving or not all-powerful. Evil casts a shadow over God's love and power. There's no small, this is no small dilemma, and the answers to it are exceedingly difficult. So you can see there's different ways people approach it. There's different ways people have summarized it, and there's different solutions that not just Christianity, but the world has tried to solve, because this is not something that's isolated to Christians, right? Any, any worldview has to take this into, um, kind of take it into account. I had one person who I knew who had a miscarriage, and so she denied God exists because for her, it was more comforting that it was just random chance, right? Just, it's just something that happens, and there was no cause of it, right? Because in her mind, being a former Christian, her thing was, if this happened, then, then God allowed it to happen, right? The same kind of problem, even problem of pain. God allowed this to happen to me, and she, she very struggled with that. So the, uh, the word that we use um, when we're talking about this is, a, you know, I forget, $2 word, a 50-cent word. There's a lot of different ways of calling it, but it's called theodicy. I'm sure some of us have heard that before. And what that means is it's a vindication of the divine attributes, particularly holiness and justice, in establishing or allowing the existence of physical and moral evil. So that's a very complicated definition. Let me put it a little bit more simply. Theodicy is the term we use when we're, we're justifying the existence of both God being morally good and evil existing at the same time. So that's just what we're talking about. So if you ever hear that word, theodicy, that's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a theological and philosophical solution to this problem that the Bible does address to a degree, but just like the Trinity, just like into a, to a certain extent salvation and uh, sanctification, it's something that we have to assemble. It's not something that says, and now here is sanctification. You know, that word doesn't exist. Uh, so let me give you, we'll start with what the world says, and then we'll wrap it up with what the, uh, what the Bible says. I think this is in your uh, handout as well. Uh, the first one, evil is unreal, it's just an illusion. Um, Eastern mysticism believes this, Buddhism believes this, this idea that pain exists because of matter and, and all kinds of different things. There's, it's too complex to, to give all the examples, but this is something, I think this falls in the same uh, aspect as people who say it's just random chance, God doesn't exist, right? It's like pain is something that's just an illusion. It's something that we call evil, but it's not really real. Uh, a philosopher that's... Um, that's honest, will we'll admit that if God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't really exist either. Evil is just good in disguise. This one kind of threw me for a loop when I was looking up this answer. Taoism believes this. It's the idea that, um, you know, the universe is balancing itself. You know, you get this, you kind of get this weirdness that happens. Um, if, it, if you see the original Star Wars movies, I hate using cultural references, but it's, it's interesting to see the evolution. The first story, there's a part where one guy says to the other, you're just a master of evil. I'm the master now. You're just a master of evil. There's clearly a duality of good versus evil that happens in the first movie, right? The light side's good, the dark side's bad, and they conflict. But you'll notice in the second movie, when new writers came in and a different person directed the movie, it became like, oh, there's balance to the force, and there's light side, and, and it's basically the yin-yang. You know how like, you see the yin-yang? It's like the black symbol and the white symbol together, and there's a dot of black and there's a dot of white in it. That means that there's a little bit of good in every darkness, and there's a little bit of darkness in every good. It's this idea that there has to be balance, and it's, they have to exist together. So good can't exist without evil. People have said it this way. You know, 
Batman can't exist without Joker. Joker has to exist because without him, Batman has no one to fight, right? They, they have to exist in this symbiosis where he can never actually take Joker out. He always has to throw him to prison and he breaks out to create more stories. And that's a microcosm of how a lot of people believe that, oh, well, evil has to exist that good can exist, or evil has to exist that good has something to contrast itself with. But we know that not to be true because when God created the world, he created it good and evil didn't exist yet, right? So uh, I just wanted to answer that right away. Dualism, number C, is kind of the same thing. That's what I was dipping into. Dualism and evil in disguise are very similar. This idea that you need contrast. Number D is the same way. We must have evil in order to appreciate good, right? To appreciate health, I must first understand sickness. To appreciate righteousness, I must first understand wickedness. I've even heard Christians make this argument, right? That, well, in order to understand the goodness of God, I need to have bad things in my life. Once again, I don't think that necessarily uh, follows but it is something that people will use to justify this. For example, um, if the experience is necessary for the appreciation of good, then God would have to experience evil himself in order to experience the goodness of himself, which doesn't make any sense. This doesn't logically follow. Evil is just relative. This is a a postmodern approach. This is something that you'll hear people say nowadays, right? Well, evil is different in different contexts, and this is evil if it fits my worldview of what I think is evil right? So um, it's racist if certain people do things, but not racist if other people do things because of other cultural things I'll put into place, right? I'll put these other things in place and say, well, we're going to hold this class of people to a different standard. You see this with elitism too, right? Certain rich people can pay for better lawyers and can call the the judges and say, hey, don't prosecute me, and so they don't go to prison, right? Uh, So there is a sense in which people can bend the rules, and they say, well, it's all just relative, Um, Open theism is a quote-unquote Christian compromise. There's people that claim to be Christian that say, that believe in open theism. I don't think you can be a Christian and believe open theism, but that's, it's it's difficult. Um, There's some people I've known who have been pretty solid but are open theists. It's very weird. If no one knows what open theism is, it's the idea that God doesn't know everything that he is also surprised when things happen because free will exists. So as people make free will decisions, God's like, whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay, now I'm going to change things and I'm going to learn. Yeah, it's very odd. It's like I said, I don't know how you read the Bible and get that. How does prophecy work if open theism is true? It's strange. It is a heresy, absolutely. Um, Like I said, you can't. No, not at all. Uh, And it's it's a very philosophical thing, right? Like, I don't hear it from lay people at all. They wouldn't even think that, right? You can't read the Bible and get that. It's definitely something they say, well, we're just interpreting the Bible incorrectly. You know, it's, he doesn't really know the future. You know, he looks down the quarter of his time and sees all the branching things that happen, and he's like, okay, yeah, that's probably going to happen. It's like 80% chance, so I guess I'll put Jesus into play, right? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Julian, what is Um, yeah, that, that's what James White says. He'll say that the logical end game of Arminianism has to be open theism, right? Um, right, right. Universalism is a different one. It, it is one of those things where you do get into tru- if you get into trouble when you talk about predestinational election and if God is reacting to things people are doing versus decreeing it in some way and, and controlling the future. But I mean, that's a big philosophical thing that's not the topic of what we're talking about because, like I said, even with this, when we're trying to assemble the Christian response to this question, the thing we always have to keep in our minds is we can only, think, we can only reason down to things we can do, right? So if I'm, if I'm thinking about free will and choice, and I, I have to think about it in terms of, like, if I was going to program a computer, how would, I, how would I create choice or randomness in what it can choose? And so, because we have to think of something lower than ourselves in order to reason to it, right? It's hard for us to reason up. And so, in the same way, if we try to apply how we make choices to God and his, what he can do, we're going to be missing something. You know, like, there, there is a, the Bible very clearly has, says that the choices we make are real and agency is real. But at the same time, he knows the future. And it doesn't, it doesn't philosophically solve that problem, right? It just says these two things are true. And so like the Trinity, we have to say, okay, obviously he's operating on a level quantumly, you know, dimensionally in a different way that I can't possibly understand. I'm strapped here in time in three dimensions. So like I said, uh, I, I just say these two things are true. I don't understand how they're both true, but I have to believe that they're both true because the Bible says it, right? So going back, 
uh, point four on your handout, the biblical conundrum. So what is the solution? In one sense, there certainly are answers in the Bible about this, but in another sense, there's not a crisp single sentence that will tie this all up in a bow, right? We just do not have perfect resolution on this issue as Christians. What we can do, however, is provide the biblical perspective for the problem. As I've talked about before, our knowledge is limited and our minds are fallen. But just because we cannot understand some things fully does not mean we're unable to understand things truly, right? Like, we can understand things to be true even if I don't fully comprehend it, right? And I said the Trinity, which is the example I always think of. So in that sense, we don't have a solution that kind of wraps the whole thing up and says, here's the solution, you can just kind of say it verbatim and point them to a verse, but we can assemble an answer based on what the person's asking. So even though the truth has not been fully revealed, I want to make clear that we can trust God who has not revealed it to us, if that makes sense. We can trust God because we know what God is like. So here's an, uh, here's an example, an imperfect example. You know, you're, you have a father and a son and they're playing in the yard and the father just tells him, Son, get down on the ground, crawl to me. He's very calm, but he's stressed. The kid does it and crawls to him. And then it's only after the son obeys, we see that there was a snake in the tree that was going to bite him and it was going to kill him. And he knew if he told him about the snake, it would freak the son out and he might run and get bit anyway. So he told him, just obey what I say and and lay down and crawl to me, right? So in God's presence one day, I believe that we will see things in a perspective that we didn't see at the time, right? You, in, the, in the moment, the son can't see what's happening to him, right? He just obeys the father, and then at the end, he says, oh, okay, I see the danger now, right? What's that? Exactly, yeah, we, we see through a mirror dimly, right? And then we'll see perfectly face-to-face, absolutely. So, we can trust God as he's been revealed to us. Number one, God is an all-powerful governor of the universe, right? Psalm 11, or I'm sorry, 115 verse 3, our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases him, right? He has complete control. Genesis 1, God spoke and the worlds were created. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Um, you can see Paul really stressing the language here, saying everything. Everything has been created by him, for him, through him, and he's in control of every aspect of his creation. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestinated, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So we see that he controls every aspect of his creation, he creates all things. Number three, God even orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself, yet he is not tainted by them. Exodus 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Um, there's another verse I didn't put in here, but uh, James White brings it up. Uh, it's very interesting. It's in Deuteronomy, and it talks about how the Israelites need to leave to go and sacrifice in Jerusalem, but that means leaving family to the, the predations of your neighbors and bandits and other things like that. It's a, it'd be a very scary thing to do. And in that verse, God says that he will take away the desire of the people for the things in the person, the, you know, in the neighbor's hearts, which is kind of wild when you think about it. Like, you're going to take the sheep and you're like, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem. See you guys. And you're, you're going. And then all the neighbors are like, yeah, that's pretty great stuff there. I want to take it. You know what? His stuff is, is dumb. I don't, I don't want his stuff anymore. And then you come back and he's like, oh, I really want it again. You know, and he can literally bend the will and what, the way that you have to think of it this way, God is able to remove or give himself, give a, a certain measure of conscience to people, right? We don't understand how this happens, but in some way he's able to change the desires of people in even a temporary way and a permanent way, right? He changes our hearts with the gospel so that we love him, we want to pray, we want to read the scripture, and some, and, but in some ways he can also temporarily do that or temporarily harden, as we see with Pharaoh. Let's turn to, um, uh, just making sure I don't do this later, Acts 2, 22. Acts 2, 22. 
I can tell I added this later because I didn't write the verse out here, so I had to turn to it. <laughs> it says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this passage is a difficult one for a person that says that God doesn't somehow use everything, including sin and evil, to accomplish his will, right? He knew that this was going to happen. He predestinated it, right? He put it into plan, and he knew that, th that Jesus would be killed by lawless men. So in a sense, he used the evil of the people around him in a way to accomplish his ultimate means. Number four, Yet God is never blameworthy for evil that occurs. Those who commit evil are to blame. James 1, 13 through 14. When tempted, no, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. I'm realizing I didn't put it here. I have another passage that's very interesting. Um, that I thought of last night, so this is why it's missing in my notes. You can write this down if you'd like. Um, I'm going to look it up in a little while. It's in 1 Kings, I think it's in 22, if I had to guess. There's a passage where it's really interesting. Um, it's Ahab. And he uh, is deciding if he wants to go to war. And he calls his false prophets to him, and they give a prophecy, and it's bad. And so he, but there was someone that actually says, well, maybe we should uh, ask a prophet of the Lord. And so he says, well, is there any prophet of the Lord? And they said, yeah, there's this guy. And he shows up, and he tells, and it's funny because Ahab's like, he's always prophesied bad things. I don't want to listen to that guy. He always gives me bad news. And so, um, it's in, verse, it's in 1 Kings 22, and it starts in verse 18. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? <laughs> and then the prophet says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramath-Gilead? And one said to another, and another said to another. Then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. It's a very interesting story, right? It shows that God is not blameworthy for evil, but there are a sense in which he even has I don't know, a fallen angel, a demon, or even just a messenger. It's hard to tell from the text who this person is. It's almost like the same court that you see in Job, right? Where the devil's there and he says, what have you been doing? And they have kind of a conversation. In the same way, now that the way to understand the story is this. God gave many, like if you read through 1 Kings all the way through, God shows mercy to Ahab in ways that I would never show mercy to a person over and over and over again. There's a part where he kills a guy for a vineyard and God forgives him. Like, it just blows my mind. So after all this grace, all this mercy, all this long suffering, right? He sends this prophet to prophesy to him. Here's what the, Lord, the word of the Lord says. Don't go to battle. He listens to these 400 prophets. He goes anyways. He's defeated, right? And then it says, because you didn't listen to the word of the Lord, I sent this lying spirit to tell these prophets things. They say, oh, you'll have victory. You'll have great reward and all this stuff. And then you listen to the lies rather than the truth of God. But these stories show that he uses all these different means, but he's not blameworthy. Four, number five, God is good and holy and he hates evil. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Right? It's the prophet talking about God's goodness. Revelation 4, day and night, the creatures around the throne of God never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come right? So the, the testimony of Isaiah and Revelation is that God is holy and he is good. 
Number six, God judges us, we do not judge God. Romans 9 says, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? And consider the example of Job. God's first question to Job puts things into perspective. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Right? This is what I was kind of hinting to. We can't, it's so hard for us to even comprehend why God is doing things, but we have no perspective by which to judge God. We have no control. It's like a, a small child asking you about financial decisions for your household. Right? It's, I can't even describe to you what, what I'm dealing with. Right? I can't even, you don't even have the, the categories to understand what I'm talking about. Right? And in the same way, like when, you, when Job's questioning God, you definitely have that sense of like, do you even know how to make an ocean? What are you talking about, right? It's, it's, it's really hard for us to understand the mind of God, and we're, we're blessed that he is somehow communicated in such a way, in words, that we can understand, have a small picture into the mind of God, right? His character, his nature, his love for us, what he desires from us. It's an amazing gift, but don't think that it's exhaustive, right? It answers every question because it can't possibly do so. Um, number seven, God will use evil for an ultimate good purpose which we will not fully understand, a greater good. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is the story of Joseph, right? He's in slavery. He, he's in prison for a long time. Uh, you know, and then eventually he uh, rises to the number two in Egypt, and he says, you intended this for evil, but this was intended by God to save all these people that will now be saved. An amazing thing. Um, I always think of that story uh, this way. When I'm suffering and I think it's tough, I think of that story and I think, if I was in year, I forget how many years he was in prison, I think it's seven. If I was in year six in prison, I think I would be like, maybe God forgot me. <laughs> you know? It's just a long time. It's a long time to be in prison, a long time to be in slavery. You know, uh, like the guy, the, I think it was the baker who was supposed to say something, you know, uh, or the cupbearer. The baker gets executed. The cupbearer is supposed to say something, he forgets. You know, um, I, I would probably start having my, my faith sh uh, shake a little bit. And I think that Joseph was, was human too, so I think that he did to that degree. But God strengthened him, God kept him through that, and God allowed that to happen for this end, this end game. But even Joseph, I think, only understood it at the end, right? Once he saw all things come together, he's like, oh, okay, I see it now. Consider the crucifixion of Jesus. The worst tragedy of human history is the brutal murder of the only perfect man to ever live. But this injustice is also the most glorious event of human history. God's sacrifice of his son to ransom a people for himself. You know, if the ultimate evil can result in the ultimate good, God can use lesser evils in other places and times in history, even our lives for our good. God's ultimate purpose is not to provide happiness for man, but rather to glorify himself. This is the problem, too, that a lot of people struggle with. If you ask people out in the street, what do you think is the best thing for people? Right? What's the ultimate good? What, what's the most thing we should, when we think about policy, when we think about laws we're supposed to be creating to make people's lives better, what are we trying to do? What's the goal, right? A lot of people don't think about that. What's, what's, what are you trying to do with the things you're doing? And a lot of people say happiness. Just trying to make your lives more happy, right? Let's remove restrictions on drugs because then people can be happy. Let's remove restrictions on sexual promiscuity so people can be happy. Let's remove restrictions on fill in the blank so people can be happy. That's really the end game. It's not about the greater good of society, right? It's not about promoting the public good. It's not about keeping the species alive, right? Like, if you think about it, you see laws that got passed, and you can see the intended consequences and then the unintended consequences later, five, ten years later, and things like, um, you know, well, let's, let's give married couples tax breaks because we want to promote people getting married so they'll have kids because the family units are the building blocks of society. That makes sense. Sure, let's pass a law that increases tax breaks for people to be married. Then what happens? People get married before they're ready or they don't like each other for tax breaks and health care benefits and all these other things, and then they divorce later, right? And then there's the whole generation of people that have a lot of divorce. So policies can have intended good effects and then have unintended effects as well. Uh, I remember, that reminds me of another story of, uh, I think it was India that passed a law because they had all these snakes. You know, there's a lot of snakes in India. So they had these poisonous snakes and they were saying, okay, we're going to create a bounty to kill all the snakes. Yeah, bring snake heads in, you get, you get money for every snake head you bring in. What do you think happened? Some people, some enterprising people, started breeding snakes. They had all these snake breeding pits where they just bred snakes and they'd kill them and they'd get money for it. 
It's like there was actually a gun buyback in the South that happened the same way. They were like, we're going to buy back all your guns. And these enterprising young lads started making guns that were just like sawed off pipes with like a little charge in it. They're like, it can shoot a bullet. And they broke, they actually made that whole program broke. It's like, you know, it's, it's unintended consequences. You can't completely restrain evil and you can't do something. Like that's, that's the, the problem with policy, right? We can never fully constrain the evil of people. And there's unintended consequences. But by contrast with how we try and fail miserably over and over and over again to do this, God is never frustrated, right? God, when he allows something to happen, he is doing it in some way to advance his purposes. That's what we believe as, as Calvinist Christians, I would say, uh, reformed, if I can use that term. So scripture does show how God uses this, this evil to advance his purposes. Um, I don't have time to go through all of them, but I think they're in your notes. If they're not, I'll read these out for you. Number one, displaying his mercy and justice. Romans 3, 26, Romans 5, 8, Romans 5, 20 through 21, and Romans 9, 17. Is that in the notes? I'm pretty sure. It's not? No, no. Uh, question. Sure. Being sold in slavery to death by his brothers, resurrected, right? Acts 2.23, right? It's the absolute gospel. Mm-hmm. I think we, we miss it when we answer the problem of evil and we don't start with, you shall surely die, and and finish with, to the praise of his glorious grace. Mm-hmm. Right? I think when, when you define it, right, the greatest event in human history is the cross, and the worst event in human history is that same cross. And I think when we understand that God was displaying what you just said, his grace and his mercy, and we would have never known mm-hmm. that God was gracious or that he was merciful without evil. And I think that's that's the issue, is God was showing us something that the angels and non-believers will never know. That's why the angels long appear to look at such a great salvation, mm-hmm. because they can only understand they didn't sin and they got heaven, and then the ones that did got banished. Right. So they only understand Justice. So I think we, 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 we couch it with the gospel to the praise of his glorious grace. Right. And then it all, because whether they understand it or not doesn't matter, mm-hmm. because the gospel is what saves. So that's how we defend it, and that's how we save it. Well, how the Lord saves it. Right. No, absolutely. Well said. I mean, that's the thing that um, is really interesting. When you talk to a person, they're operating upon the thing we're talking about, right? Happiness is the greatest good. And when we define it, like you were saying, brother, like if we define it as the greatest end game is the glory of God, right? The praise of his glorious grace. People, when you say that to people, they don't comprehend it. it does, it's not even a category for them. They look at you blank, like, what? What do you, what do you, what do you mean? Like, God's praising himself, that's good? It's like, yeah, that's what we're created to do, right? If we, the fact is, people are created to, you think about everything created has a, has a reason for existing, right? I don't create a chair just to look at it. I create it to sit in it, right? I create a table to eat on. I create paper to read, right? Like, Everything that we make has a purpose, so we're made. What's our purpose? You have to answer that question, right? I think one good thing to add to that is a lot of people, if you're witnessing to them, they don't get it at all, like you were saying. Right. Unbelievers do not get it. But what better thing could God do us mm-hmm. than to worship him? Right. right. What better thing can the human race ever receive? Right. You know, it's, it's weird because people think that uh, individual freedom, being able to choose anything, having no purpose, is in a weird way liberating when it's not really. You know, you see that with, I think, our society. We have so much freedom, so much choice. People are confused. I hit 18, what do I do? What do I do with my life, right? There's no direction. I don't know where I, I could do anything. Well, that's unhelpful, right? It's like, go out and find a job. There's the world. I'm looking at a giant field. I'm like, ah, uh, you know? And in other cultures, I'm not saying one culture is better than another specifically. I'm just saying as an example, they have roles, you know, hunter-gathering, like, okay, you're going to go hunting with the men. You're going to, like, learn how to kill something and learn how to gather and stuff. It's very clear. It's fairly defined. Now, I don't think any of us want to live in hunter-gather societies, right? Agrarian cultures are much wealthier than that. But what I'm saying is that we haven't defined clear goals for people as they grow up, right? And that's, that's a, to our detriment. We should do that to our children, right? Give them some guidance. Give them some, here's what you should do. Here's what was expected of you. I may be wrong, but I'm going to at least set you on a path I think is good. Look at the person's strengths and weaknesses. But getting back to what you're saying, if we're created to serve God, to, to worship our creator, then what's going to happen if we don't worship our creator? We're going to worship something else. We're going to find something to worship. That's what we're created to do, right? A hammer is meant to hammer nails. You can use it, I guess, to cook with, 
but it's going to be weird, right? It's going to be odd. It's not going to make sense. So in the same way, uh, we have to understand that God created us for himself, but in a kind of complementarian way, just like how husbands serve their wives and wives serve their husbands, and they're giving each other to themselves, but they're satisfied in that, they're complete in that, they feel like they're serving their roles, they're happy because of it, right? Married people are happier than people that aren't. It's like, in, that, in the same way, when we worship God in spirit and in truth, we are happier than people can understand if they're not worshiping God in spirit and truth, right? And it's hard to get people to understand that. But, like, I always use that example of the chair and things just to help them understand the logical stepping stones to this is why we worship God. Um, number two, redemption. So, Christ suffers for us, for us on our behalf. Paul sees his sufferings for the church and the spread of the gospel as similar to Christ's sufferings. Anytime we witness or reviled, right, we are suffering for the glory of Christ, right? He says, count it as joy, brothers, when people persecute you, right? Because we are now identifying with Christ in that way. Number three, shock value to unbelievers to gain their attention and promote a change in heart. We see humans have a tendency to forget God when things are going well. God can use pain and suffering to accomplish this. God may use pain as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world from our complacency. Um, C.S. Lewis says it this way, I am progressing along a path of life in my ordinary, contented, fallen, and godless condition, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease. At first, I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happiness looks like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be at all times. I remind myself that toys were never intended to possess my heart, and that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ, right? Pain can do that. There is something to pain that helps us realize reality. Like, if you've ever talked to anyone, <laughs> anyone, right, it's a general statement, you'll notice it's very hard to change people's minds, extremely hard to change people's minds. Even if you know clearly everyone's telling them, this is a wrong choice, bad choice, don't do this, right? Hard to change your minds. But when we actually start changing our minds is when something cataclysmic happens to us a disease, someone gets sick, someone dies, car accident, right? Something has to shock you out of this. Um, it's almost like you're drugged, right? It's like you're, you're taking the IV and you're just drifting through life, right? Under the dopamine effects of all the things to entertain us. And we're all susceptible to this, right? Myself included. I'm not saying this as a, as a condemnation. I'm saying that the world is designed to lull us into neutrality, right? Not to care about anything, to seek joy and happiness, and that's the only thing. Number four, fatherly discipline of believers. Romans 5 says this, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. So God, if he allows things to happen to us, it's to create this cycle of perseverance, character, and hope in God. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those who he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline of some sort, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's a really great um, section out of Hebrews, and it's something I have to remember, <laughs> you know, myself. Uh, no one enjoys it when it's happening, but uh, good discipline, godly discipline, has uh, pays dividends down the line. We should trust the God who has revealed himself to us. This is uh, point six on your outline. Number one, end suffering. God will one day put an end to pain, suffering, and evil. Our hope in, of heaven is captured well in Revelation 21 uh, chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. 
Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will, no more, there will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain, for old things have passed away. This is the thing that, these are, this coupled with Noah, are the two responses I have to people when they say, why does God allow evil? Remember those things we said in the beginning where if God is perfectly good and he's all-powerful, how does he allow evil to exist? Well, there's many passages you could go to. Uh, one I say is when you look at Noah's story, he says, I looked upon the earth and I saw that in the hearts of men was only evil continuously, right? So he says that he's going to wipe out humanity, and that's what happens. And here, well, we get the good part of Revelation, right? But you see what happens in the early part of Revelation, right? Where he executes judgment. People say mountains fall upon us, right? You see the judgment, the wrath of the Lamb. And then you have this at the end where it says he's going to do kind of a second thing, right? Peter says that he destroyed the world with water and he will destroy the world with fire again and remake it into uh, the right way it was supposed to be. Uh, bringing it back to Eden, right? A second Eden, if you will. So you have that. And so then you have the passage in Romans where it says he's passing over former sins, right? There's a sense in which he's long-suffering. Like I said, you see that with Ahab. You see it in so many places. You see it even with David. You see it everywhere, right? Where God is not executing judgment immediately. He lets it go. He lets it go. He lets it go. And then he, uh, he executes judgment. Even with the people of Israel, right? Warns them, warns them, warns them. They ignore him. Okay, into slavery. Cry out. He saves them. They forget him. He warns them slavery, right? It's a cycle that happens over and over and over again. That long suffering is something we can't understand, but it has to do with God's time scale, right? A day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. We can't comprehend it. He's outside of time in that way. Um, before we continue with the last part of it, does anyone have any questions? We have about 10 minutes or so. I wanted to leave some time for people to ask questions or uh, to comment. Anything? Good. Maybe at the very end. Oh, sorry, Christian, I need to look up high enough. Uh, the concept of free will in us does not exist. We can choose what type of pizza we want, mm -hmm. but when it comes to salvation, there is no such thing as free will. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot, if you think that you can earn your way to heaven, you've just blasphemed Jesus. Right. And there's nothing special in the elect for why he chose us. You can, you can see that by looking around, right? You have people of every different race, ethnicity, intelligence, social class, old, young. It doesn't matter. All walks of life, right? When you look around a church that's, that's really the church, you see, it's like, okay, I can't see a particular kind of class or demographic that's like, man, if we just talk to them, we'd have like a million Christians, right? It's like God saves people irregardless. Yes, brother. Mm -hmm. like, I, like, I'm not talk, talking to a non-believer ever about election. Right. Right. I'm right. telling them to repent and believe. Right. Right. I, I'm, I'm imploring, I'm begging, I'm commanding, because right. I'm, I'm begging, but mm -hmm. I'm also commanding because it is a commandment right. from the king. Reasoning. Right. right. Mm -hmm. All of that. Mm -hmm. but, the, the, but election is something I'm going to talk to a brother that's struggling with sin, a brother or myself, but I'm battling with sin. Right. Right. When we're, talk, when we're out street with his anger right. at our job, we should literally be telling them, uh, right, the gospel, right. and the, the only response is to repent, turn from sin, right. because there's a tool of for those sins. So, right. absolutely. Sometimes we go right to election. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> now we have this non believer born. Wait, no, I right. 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 And now they're thinking about the wrong thing instead of, hey, I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. Right. And, that, and thanks for bringing that up because that kind of helps me segue to what I, what I was thinking about, which is always when I try to wrap this up, I think, um, one second, I'll, I'll, right after this, uh, is how do, we, how do we tie the philosophical, the theological into the practical, 
right? How do I take what we've learned about the problem of evil and how do I weave that into conversations with an unbeliever, right? Because the ultimate goal I want to do is I'm preaching the gospel to you and you bring up the problem of evil. I had that happen to me. A guy was like, why did God take my wife from me? You know, he was an older guy. And in that moment, like I said, I could see he still had pain. I'm like, do I engage? Do I not? Do I give him the truth about the fact that we're in a fallen world, right? Where there's evil all around us. And a lot of the times the actions that people have against each other is kind of a natural result of sin. Uh, I have a theory about how, you know, as sin exists in a metaphysical way, that's where we get diseases and other things like that. Like, they, they get created by the, the evil in the world. Like I said, it's philosophical and metaphysical, but point is, I, I could get to that level of detail, or I could say, there's evil in this world, but you need to solve your own evil and your problem with your creator, right? To a degree, let me answer that question later. How are you going to answer God when you die, right? And get to the heart of the aspect get the gospel to him first, and then answer the philosophical questions later. Don't always be sidetracked and distracted by your right. Things that are high, highly theological things, because I've even had people ask me about election on the street. Right. I'm like, where'd you hear that term? <laughs> right? But and they, I think a lot of times they're just trying to trip me up. Well, why are you out here if you believe in election? Well, because when you think of things in a, in a philosophical framework, like why do you discipline your children? The answer for that is philosophical, right? It's in my head. I created a worldview, and now I'm acting out my worldview, right? Hopefully it's informed by the Bible, like we read, right? And then I discipline my children based on that. But that's not something that you do in the practical. I don't sit with my daughter and say, here's why I'm doing it, right? I, it's, it just has a practical application. It's instantaneous. So I, I agree with you. I think that we need to keep this in the back of our minds, but don't get distracted by arguing philosophically. Yes, Sheila? I can skip. Oh, okay. Hopefully I, I answered your question. So, um, you know, that's, the, that's the thing that, that when we're talking about the problem of evil, we have so many ways we can go. Uh, the Bible does address it, like I said. Um, hopefully I've given you enough to think about this. Um, my last, um, the last statements I had in my outline were this. So we can trust God has revealed himself that he will end suffering, that the evil we have experienced in some way will make sense to us. That God will execute justice, like we said, at the end of the world. And that by enduring, right, we, we glorify God in our endurance of the evil around us. Romans 8.28 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are facing death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That is our hope. That is something that we hold on to. This is the end of the greatest chapter in the Bible, by my, my opinion. Right? Romans 8 is, what's it all about? It's all about God, and we're going to be with him. There's nothing that can separate us from that. You know? That's what we have to hold on to. So even when we don't understand the things that happen to us, even when we experience pain and suffering, and we say, why God? Why is this happening to me? Why is this particular thing happening? We go back to this. I don't understand. But like a child crawling on the ground to his father, that's us with God. We don't understand what's happening right now. We don't see the snake above us, right? And hopefully one day we'll understand those things. Maybe not. He doesn't know us an answer. What's that? He doesn't know us an answer. Right. No, I just, for me, I think you answer the problem of evil with the gospel. Right. I think if a person understands why evil exists in some metaphysical, theoretical way, and they don't understand the gospel, the conversation was useless. Right? The end goal has to be the end goal. The main thing has to remain the main thing. Right. Right.
Right. Right. It is. Right. No, and that's what I'm saying is that there are answers. Right. The question is, uh, how do we, how do we communicate that? Right. Like you were saying, gospel. Maybe they're not going to get all of it. You know, we can give them pieces of the answers, but it's it's something that comes through a change of the mind. Last thing to to close this kind of because we're talking about free will and, and choices and stuff. This is the most difficult thing about people, right? If you ever watched uh, a movie and a person throughout the entire movie acts consistently and we're like, yeah, that's how I am. It's not how you are, right? People do random things. They do weird things, right? Especially kids. Like they like chicken nuggets one day and they hate them the next. They're not consistent at all. And we don't know why people's desires change like that, even our own, right? Why do I feel bad one day? I'm in a bad mood. I'm just I'm negative all the time. Other times I don't read my Bible and I'm like, even though I know I love it, it's just sometimes we, we don't know what motivates us. And that's what we were talking about with, uh, if you read Jonathan Edwards on the freedom of the will, he talks about how we have all these motivators all around us all the time, right? What your parents think about you, what you think about yourself, what you want to do, are you hungry, right? Are you sleepy? Are you, you know, all these things are constantly bombarding us all the time. We don't even realize it, right? We go through life with all these motivators and we think that our will is just floating in a bubble. You know, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to get choices and I'm going to decide what I will do. It's like, no, that doesn't happen a lot of times. You're, you're influenced by all kinds of things. And if we don't have the truth of the gospel, we are going to be blown about, right, by all the things in our lives, right? It's like a ship on the sea, right? And so you're right. We can stuff our heads full of a lot of theoretical knowledge and it can be useless. But that's not saying it's, it's not useful, right? But there's a place for it, absolutely. And that's a good way to end. Right. Right, we obey the gospel as the command, right? All right, well, we're out of time. Uh, come talk to me if you have any other questions and we'll answer them next time. Father God, I thank you again for this, uh, what feels like to me a very fruitful discussion. I pray that what we talked about here and, and the truth of your word and the scriptures that we've had time to read, Lord, that you would use all of those things to encourage the saints, help them to understand this problem at least to a little bit and so they can use it when they talk to unbelievers. Help them to focus on the gospel, myself included. Help us to focus on the gospel and to make sure that people hear the truth before it's too late. We pray, Father, that blood would not be on our hands, but we would warn people before they die. It's a hard thing. It's hard to, to try to motivate persons. It's hard to, to convince people. It's hard to get people to understand and see reason. But I pray, Father, you'd be with us in every encounter, every family member conversation, every you know, talk on the street, every coworker conversation. Lord, be with us. Bless our words, bless our actions, and I pray that we would see fruit. We would see fruit of the harvest. We would see people come to Christ. Thank you so much for every good thing you've given us. Be with us now for the rest of the service. In Jesus' name, amen.